Welcome to Battleground, coming to you this week from Granada in southern Spain. We like getting out of the studio, as you know, on this program, but it's the first time we've been here broadcasting from Spain, and uh, I suspect maybe the last time for a long while. But anyway, here we are. Granada is one of the most important tourist sites in Spain. It is home to perhaps the finest monument to Islamic architecture, which uh, just illustrates how sophisticated that society was. It's a city of extraordinary beauty, but that doesn't make it immune from the tensions that are spilling out in Europe and indeed Australia from events in the Middle East in response to the massacre of Israeli citizens almost three weeks ago. I mean, it isn't why I came to Granada, I just came across this here. Uh, I was here for other things, but um, that's Europe. I'll be bringing you more of that report later. And sociologist Frank Faridi will be joining me from Brussels to discuss why so many Western radicals are, are siding with the terrorists and blaming their victims. I'll also be joined by Yossi Kupavasa, who's a former chief of the research division of the Israeli military intelligence, who'll be telling us what he thinks of a comment by senior federal government minister Ed Husik accusing Israel of unleashing collective punishment on Palestinians. Do these people have a clue what they're talking about? Unfortunately not. Nobody will be able to say that we occupy Gaza. They have their own government. That's coming up on Nick Cater's Battleground, which streams every Thursday night at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, 12pm midday here in Spain, in Brussels. And um, you can watch it, of course, on the, on the web. Just go to adh.tv, or better still, for that full viewing experience, download the app on your smartphone or smart TV. It's impossible not to begin with the events in Australia following the resounding defeat of the proposal to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders a privileged voice in the seat of power. Uh, I've written about this in The Australian recently. I think this is a very important moment uh, for Australia and a, and a great opportunity for those of us who object to that horrible thing, identity politics. On Sunday, the Yes campaign, or some of them, issued a statement, unsigned I note, expressing their disgust at the 9 million Australians who voted no. Once again, of course, they played the race card. They said, there has always been racism against First Nations people in Australia. It increased with multiple daily instances during the campaign and was a powerful driver for the No campaign. They say that misinformation and disinformation in mainstream media released, quote, a tsunami of racism against our people. And they accused the majority of Australians of committing a shameful act. Well, what's a shameful act to one person is a brilliant act of democracy to others. The result of the referendum, they said, was so appalling and so mean-spirited as to be utterly unbelievable a week following. It will remain unbelievable and appalling for decades to come. Well, they better start believing it because if they don't draw the message from this, or if they draw the wrong message, I'm afraid we're in for a long, hard battle in the culture wars. It was uh, uh, this unbelievable appall and appalling act was, as I say, an example of democracy at its finest. It was a mechanism to give Australians a voice and an opportunity to be heard on an issue we should give, whether, the issue of whether we should give special treatment to some citizens over others on the grounds that they are members of a particular category, in this case, a racial category. Fraser Nelson wrote about it in the UK Telegraph. He said, Australia has just had the world's first referendum on identity politics. Modern conservatism has been given a new cause and a message and, and to vote to vote no to the voice of division. Well, I think he's right. The 9 million Australians who voted no weren't just knocking back the voice, they were rejecting the whole woke social justice shooting match. They were objecting to being robbed of their worth as individuals and being dumped into categories. They think that newborns should be categorised as either male or female, not as oppressors and oppressed. And they don't believe it's sensible to indulge in the luxury of pursuing historical grievances if we want to remain a civilised society. They think that the common bond of citizenship best overcomes differences and that no group of citizens is any more special than any other. The referendum result, in my view, is an assertion of the principle upheld in the US 14th Amendment. Our constitution should be colour blind. 
Well, here in Granada, the tourism sector has well and truly recovered from the hit it took during COVID. Tourism is worth around 150 billion euro to the Spanish economy. That's around 10% of gross domestic product. But the economy is being uh, damaged and crippled by the zero 2050 goal. That's just the same one that's creating chaos in Australia. It's doing exactly the same thing here. Politicians here became convinced in the early 2000s that the country could be powered by solar panels. They introduced huge subsidies and incentives that encouraged families and businesses to sink their savings into solar panels with the expectation that there would be a long-term return. Well, the whole solar Ponzi scheme came crashing down in the 2008 financial crisis. Government subsidies were withdrawn and a long, long-term contracts torn up, sending tens of thousands of Spaniards broke. Once bitten, twice shy you might think, but no, 15 years later, the solar gold rush is on again, encouraged, of course, by government incentives. Spain now has 30 gigawatts of solar, solar power installed. That's 30 gigawatts installed. We know that the actual output of that is probably about a quarter of that figure at best. Uh, but the Spanish are belatedly discovering that renewable energy eats up a lot of land. Up and down the country, communities are being turned upside down by the arrival of big renewables. In Spain, just as in Australia, the unequal contest between local communities and big energy backed by the government goes on. Last year, it was the subject of an acclaimed feature film uh, by director Carlos Simon. It was the winner of the Golden Bear Award at last year's Berlin Festival, Alcaraz. suggesting we make the Australian version of that in Rye Park in the uh, Yas Valley. Hello Rosemary if you're, you're watching. All that pain of course for no gain after tens of billion dollars have been invested in the last 20 years. What's to show for it? Well let me tell you what the energy mix in Spain has been for the last 12 months. 18% solar, that's less than a fifth. 17% wind, 4% hydro, so grand total for renewables of under 40%. For the rest it's 18% gas, 2% coal, and 22% nuclear power. And would you believe that there are plans to close down all Spain's nuclear power stations by the end of the decade? Decade. I told you it was absolute madness. And they're also bringing in bits of power to back up from France and Morocco. Well, it'll be of cold comfort to the people of Ravenshoe, Rye Park, Storwell, Samwell, or any of the other uh, places in Australia that have been declared a renewable energy zone. Uh, it'll be a cold comfort to you to know that you are part of a global community of people who wear the cost of the elite's crazy vision. Like you, they've had to ha have this burden thrust upon them with no examination of the technical feasibility of reducing carbon emissions, no consideration of the cost to our economy, the social fabric, or indeed our natural wildlife. The people who are afflicted by these renewable projects live exclusively in the no-zone. That's four-fifths of Australia in electorates that voted no to the voice at the last election. None of these giant projects is happening in any of the 32 metropolitan electorates that voted yes to the voice. Why hasn't there been any true local involvement in this decision-making? Why not ask the Australian Electoral Commission, perhaps, to conduct local plebiscites? After the emphatic result on October the 14th, I suspect we know why. It's been a great puzzle to me why so many Western intellectuals, so-called, have sided with Hamas in this brutal conflict in the Middle East. They have all the evidence before them in their mobile phones. They can see the atrocities that are being committed, but so ideologically driven are they that they've backed the terrorists. 
And here in Granada, well, it's not immune. It's a, a town with a fair immigrant population. But more than that, there are a lot of people, a lot of Spaniards, young Spaniards, who automatically want to side with the terrorists. In a moment, I'll be talking to Frank Vridi, who'll be explaining this strange phenomenon to me from Brussels. But first, have a look at this report from a protest I encountered here on Saturday. What you're seeing here just uh, reinforces the need for some moral clarity in this debate and the, the challenges that we face. I'm here in uh, southern Spain, the town of Granada in Andalusia. It's, uh, it's not a special town. Well, it's a very special town in a lot of ways. Two and a half million people come here every year to go to the, see the Alhambra. But like so many other towns in Europe right today, it is uh, engulfed in a demonstration by people supporting the Palestinian cause. I mean, as you see from the kind of people here, there are uh, all kinds, you know. There's uh, obviously people who look like they're migrants to Spain from the Middle East, other parts of uh, the region, possibly from Palestine too. But I would say, looking around, at least half the crowd here are um, Spanish people, students, people from the LGBTQ movement, people who call themselves radicals, people who wouldn't wouldn't much like living in Gaza, I suspect, but they're here to protest for what's happening down there in southern Gaza. And uh, I have to say, it's, uh, it's really quite troubling. It's happening all around the world, of course, not just here in Spain, but um, in Australia too, in, in Britain. In, uh, even in the United States we see this community in uh, universities Jewish people feeling threatened by this return of what amounts to anti-semitism and uh, you can see why when they demonstrate they like to do it quite forcefully it's the children in a way that, that break your heart here It isn't why I came to Granada, I just came across this here. Uh, I was here for other things, but um, that's Europe, you know. It's uh, a random square in this place, the Plaza Nueva in um, Granada, a place where you normally come and have a quiet cup of coffee or a, a cerveza or something like that, a bit of tapas, and today it's being taken over for a very different purpose. Frank Farini joins me from Brussels. Frank, welcome to Battleground. A pleasure to talk to you. Frank, I, I, I sense from your writing and, and have been reading your writing for some years, I sense that this particular issue is, is hit you emotionally. You, 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 like me, are probably quite shocked at the reaction there's been in the West to the Hamas atrocities. Yeah, I've been very rarely as uh, disturbed by an event as, uh, as what happened. Um, the uh, atrocities committed in southern Israel was really bad enough, but the reaction within Europe uh, I've just completely disoriented me, first of all. Uh, I was really surprised by, the first of all, the lack of uh, courage on the part of many people to say what's right, but even worse, there are all these other people who actually supported Hamas and took the view that somehow what is a, an anti-Jewish pogrom 
was entirely excusable on the grounds that somehow these people are, are not quite uh, equal to other human beings. Mm. Well, we've seen this in other periods, of course, Frank. You know, there was famously the intelligentsia in the West backed the Khmer Rouge in uh, Cambodia. They, they backed Chairman Mao and his great leap forward, or some of them did. But it seems to me they, they then had at least a plausible excuse uh, of you. ignorance. And now, and now there is no excuse. Uh, ignorance is not an excuse for people who can see this on their mobile phones in their own pockets. Well, that's the thing. Usually when people commit atrocities, they hide it and they pretend that they, uh, they weren't involved in ethnic cleansing or any other horrible acts, uh, war crimes. In this case, it's the very opposite. They, they kind of flaunted it. They basically boasted about the fact that they've killed all these civilians. What was interesting was that uh, the reaction among sections of the intelligentsia was to suggest that in fact uh, the Jewish people that were killed were not civilians because apparently all Jewish uh, people in Israel are somehow either settlers or somehow complicit in acts of oppression. And therefore the argument was that it's quite okay to murder them uh, because they don't count as, as kind of legitimate you know, civilians. And what really surprised me was the uh, almost like casual anti-Semitism that came out, this kind of casual anti-Semitism dressed up as, as really a, 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 a legitimate act on the grounds that what was happening in Israel was the process of decolonization. And when you decolonize a society, then everything is permitted. Yeah, th this decolonization uh, narrative, this idea it seems to me they're in love with the idea of this without any reference to what it actually does on the ground, whether it is fair or helpful or not. Well, the thing is, if you believe in the, the new version of decolonization, which has got nothing to do with colonies, but it's all about discrediting and destroying the legacy of Western civilization, if you believe in that, then what you see is something that uh, is very different than what you and I visualize, because the, the theory of decolonization desensitizes you from the suffering of certain kinds of people who are meant to be oppressors or settlers or colonialists. And once you are deemed to be in that category, then the pain you suffer, the humiliation you suffer, you could be raped and killed, and you can have your children murdered, that is not seen in, in, a, in a way that is... Uh, com comprehensible to, to you and I or to normal human beings because regardless of what we think of those individuals, we're shocked by that kind of uh, uh, almost pornographic uh, elevation of, 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 of uh, atrocity into, into an entertainment format. We're almost horrified. For them, this is a cause for celebration. And that's what I find uh, really, really shocking because it's one thing to support Hamas and say, I'm politically aligned to Hamas. It's another thing to actually legitimate and justify and even celebrate and laugh about the pain that's in, that's and the humiliation that you inflicted on human beings. And not, not to see that somehow when you kill young women and young men who are dancing at a music festival, it is not okay. You know, that's not something that normal human beings uh, simply casually accept as this is the new normal. But in their eyes, this is like a blow for freedom. This is what I, I found puzzling, to say the least. Is, you know, we know that people, the, the anointed, have a, a great way of filtering out reality in order not to disturb their vision of the world. But this takes it to new heights, you know, to ignore what was going on there uh, and to somehow be able to reorganise that in your own mind as some sort of resistance struggle or, 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 or push to regain uh, occupied land. That takes an extraordinary uh, feat of denying what is in front of your very eyes, doesn't it? It does. And you have to remember that these are the people that often say that words are violence. Or latterly they were saying, you know, they had all these slogans saying that silence is violence. But when you see real violence on a grotesque scale being enacted in front of you, that is called something very, very different. That is seen as not violence in the way that normal human beings understand it, 
but is interpreted by them as a blow for freedom, as an entirely legitimate activity to be celebrated and, and, and to be somehow boasted about. And that requires a certain psychological inversion where you are so narcissistically obsessed with your own identity and with identity issues that you simply get switched off from processing the real things that are occurring in front of your eyes. Yeah, well, this is, a, this, is a, this is the fruit of the identity politics mentality, isn't it, Frank, where you put people into categories and their moral worth is ascribed by their category, not by themselves. Uh, and here you have, in their classification, the oppressors and the oppressed. Then this is what it leads to, a complete desensitization to actual human feelings. It does that because once you begin to uh, systematically demean Jewish identity and you begin to systematically demean uh, the identity of Israelis as somehow existing on a far lower moral plane than yours, then you begin to, in a sense, develop first of all double standard that things that are not normally okay are quite legitimate when it's targeted at Jews. And therefore, you have the development of a new kind of anti-Semitism. And then after a while, you, you develop an idea that somehow uh, the world will be a better place if you began to almost cleanse the world of in these individuals. And it's interesting because the decolonization theory that they have uh, suggests that uh, one of the reasons why violence is perfectly all right is because the people who've been colonized are mental, have been mentally ill and mentally distressed by their experience. And the way in which these individuals can regain their mental health is through an act of violence. So from their perspective, what Hamas is doing in, or, or did in southern Israel was a process of self-help, a kind of therapeutic uh, sort of uh, intervention, which, okay, led to the loss of many lives and, and the brutalization of, of thousands of people, but at the same time, it allowed the Hamas uh, people, fighters, to regain their self-esteem and, and their self-worth. At the same time as we've been watching events unfold in Israel from October 7 onwards, here in Australia, or in Australia, we've been having this very divisive debate about an indigenous voice to parliament. And I think I, I've been discomforted by the parallels that you see in the narrative that's being put forward by particularly people on the more extreme side of the uh, indigenous rights movement. They do talk, they spoke in a statement they issued last Sunday, about Australia as being an occupied country, as a need to regain sovereignty, the fact that sovereignty was never ceded, that, that they are in fact still the sovereign people of the land. That's not so very different from the rhetoric you hear from the Palestinians, is it, Frank, or am I making some false moral equivalence here? No, I think the language is very similar. It's just been universalized now, this uh, argument about decolonization, about occupation, about facing settler society, about experiencing oppression. This language has become very normal. And literally any group in any, any nation can almost overnight adopt it as, and try to use it as a way of making claims about their circumstance. And what it does, in a sense, is it kind of entrenches identity politics to the point at which society becomes so polarized, so highly differentiated, that the possibility of there being a common community within a nation becomes entirely diminished. And it's really one of the accomplishments of the promoters of this ideology uh, that they, they succeeded in, in encouraging this kind of uh, almost sort of resentment uh, and make, playing a really, really role in make, important role in making sure that that resentment becomes so deeply entrenched uh, that you create, a, a, it's almost like two different worlds where there is no possibility of there being dialogue or the reconciliation of any of the differences. Well, th that's right, Frank, because at a geopolitical level, you know, 15 years ago, we were talking about the two-state solution constantly, the two-state solution, a peaceful coexistence between a Palestinian state and Israeli state and there was lots of discussions about that in, in Oslo and, and Camp David and various other places. 
but I, that, nobody's, I haven't heard too many people talk about the two-state solution recently. It seems to me that the way this has progressed in terms of the way the Palestinians see themselves, especially driven by groups like Hamas, there is no possibility of, of peaceful coexistence. Well, certainly not in the short or the medium term. I mean, that uh, ship seems to have sailed. There is very little possibility of any diplomatic solutions or even any uh, behind-the-scenes dialogue, uh, because very often what a lot of the Palestinian politicians are saying is that they want nothing less than the destruction of Israel. So if the destruction of Israel becomes their uh, immediate objective, then diplomacy and dialogue uh, acquire uh, an entirely perfunctory role. It basically becomes a discussion about hostages, discussions about the peripheral issues uh, facing the, these different societies. So we are now faced with a, a almost like a never-ending war situation where this is likely to continue until one side succeeds in, in destroying the other. I and mean, that seems to be the dynamic that's in place at the moment. To talk a bit about the decolonization notion Decolonization, I think originally, Frank, correct if I'm wrong, was used to describe uh, Britain, for instance, withdrawing from its empire uh, and uh, you know, actual moves by a country to move, uh, to give independence to other countries. But this is quite different, isn't it? This is very, very, um, very different concept now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is totally different. Decolonization now means uh, essentially calling into question any of the achievements of Western civilization. So now I talk about decolonizing the classroom, decolonizing mathematics, decolonizing institutions, the state. It's used in a very general sense. And what it really refers to is that you basically want to uh, destroy or call into question all the values and all the norms and all the achievements that's associated uh, with Western civilization from the Greeks all the way through the Renaissance, Christianity, Judaism, all these things are seen as uh, targets for decolonization. And what we see in Israel is the practice of that. So before we just saw the theory of decolonization, now we see decolonization in action because in their eyes, Israel symbolizes Western civilization in the Middle East. And in their eyes, Jews represent hyper-Western individuals. And if you are uh, in the business of trying to destroy that civilization and uh, marginalize its, its influence, then targeting Israel becomes entirely sensible. Are we witnessing what in hindsight is the inevitable result of the way our children have been taught in schools for the last 20 years? I think so. I think the generational divide on this question is very shocking. Because young people have been educated and socialized into many of these uh, anti-Western ideals. They've been taught a history that tells them that their past is shameful, that they have got nothing to be proud about, that being Australian or being British or American should be a source of shame rather than of pride. So if you've been educated into these ideals decade after decade, it's not surprising that when you have a, an event like uh, the one that's unfolding in, in the Middle East at the moment, young people are going to be uh, so confused that they're going to side with, uh, with, with Hamas or with any other group that's uh, unambiguously anti-Western. Frank, uh, as always, uh, towards the end of the interview, I've got to ask you for some redemption. W where's the way forward to this? How can we rescue this situation? Difficult to uh, give a reply to that. I think we have to uh, unconditionally support Israel in this fight. I don't think there can be any equivalence, and we, we can't really tell the Israelis that they got a tiptoe you know, uh, around the challenges that confront them. Uh, they are fighting for their survival, and they need to know that there are people like us who back them unconditionally. And I think it's quite important as well that we uh, embark on a... On a program and, and a campaign of education where basically challenge many of these ideals that have been institutionalized in cultural, in the domain of culture and education that we 
basically put forward a robust argument for who we are, where we come from, uh, what the West has achieved and how important that is for humanity. We have to tell people that Western civilization is not just about the West, but it's about humanity and, and it's a civilization that's been able to give humanism a real meaning over the centuries. And I think that if we can get more and more people to sign up and understand these ideals, then we can make sure that they are on the right side of this horrible conflict that is not going to end very, very, very soon. Frank Freely, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Well, the situation on the West Bank is uh, changing by the hour, and with a few notable exceptions, the Western media have served us very poorly. It's failed in its duty to give us the unvarnished truth, however much it might disturb their ignorant preconceptions of right and wrong in this complex historical argument. Well, Yossi Kupavasa is a former chief of the intelligence division of the, of, for the Israeli army, uh, and he's a man who's followed this very closely. I caught up with him on, by Zoom from Jerusalem a few days ago. Yossi Kupavasa, thank you for joining me uh, from Jerusalem. Tell me, the, can you bring us up to date with the latest situation there? Yes, we are still recovering from uh, this unbelievable barbaric attack that took place on October 7th. Uh, it's, it's still devastating every time we see again the, the, vi the video footage from uh, what happened. It's, it's really difficult to, to, to watch. And, uh, the, the entire uh, Israeli people is... is in a state of shock yet. It's, uh, it's very difficult to, to re recover from that. But we are focused now on, uh, on the need to respond to this uh, vicious attack. And uh, we take action in uh, Gaza in order to uh, hit back those terrorists who perpetrated this terror attack. And uh, we are prepared along the northern border with Lebanon to face the attacks coming from Hezbollah. And we understand that uh, this is a confrontation between two axes, the axis of evil led by Iran, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian group of uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, on the one hand, trying to sh join hands with Russia and China in changing the world order and their focus is on uh, wiping Israel off the map. And uh, on the other hand, we have the uh, axis of the civilized world, and uh, we are not alone in this in this battle. We have uh, the United States support in very practical terms, uh, not only supplying us solidarity and uh, affection, but uh, also uh, moving uh, task forces uh, to to our region and uh, showing readiness to fight with us if if the war is widened and uh, Iran or Hezbollah join in. That is very important. And uh, we are all waiting to the most decisive point in this confrontation, which is going to be the, the Israeli ground incursion into Gaza in order to eradicate uh, the Hamas uh, control and rule of Gaza. I don't want to dwell too much on the, the obvious uh, issues around intelligence failure and, and the security breaches that occurred just over two weeks ago. But, but seeing as you, are, you do have some expertise in intelligence, can you assure us that, that what happened was uh, an aberration and that in, in every other sense we can, we can expect Israel to be uh, as fully prepared and, and, uh, and as, as we always imagined it was in these situations? Yes, Israel is a very strong uh, country and uh, we have uh, very good intelligence. Uh, but every intelligence has its... Uh, dark time and uh, surprise can happen we have to be we had to be better prepared to the eventuality of a surprise because you, there's no reason to be surprised by the fact that there is a surprise these surprises occur so often and everybody encounters them uh, most european countries were surprised by the russian attack in uh, in ukraine uh, and, and it's true to, to everybody everybody is uh, surprised from time to time that's part of life uh, the fact that we attack uh, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of ta targets of Hamas in Gaza Strip without uh, so far touch wood, no, uh, no mistake, 
is a, is a proof of uh, the quality of our intelligence to collect all this information. Some of it was collected in advance, but some of it is collected during the war. Uh, is uh, is uh, speaks for uh, the capabilities of the Israeli intelligence. We have Here to understand at the same time that we didn't make a terrible mistake. And uh, we are only human beings in this respect, and, uh, but we have to learn from our mistakes. And the mistake was uh, threefold, I would say. First of all, we wanted to believe, and because of that we believed, in spite of the fact that it was totally wrong, that there is a change happening with Hamas, that Hamas is deterred, that Hamas is uh, more focused now on uh, improving the con living conditions of the people living in Gaza. Uh, that uh, when we give them uh, all kinds of uh, benefits, uh, like allowing them to bring uh, workers from Gaza to Israel and uh, so on and so forth, and we give them money, uh, they will uh, change their color and uh, be happy with that. Instead of understanding that uh, this is wrong and they are going to carry out an attack because they have the opportunity and because they believe we, are, we were weak and the West was weak, uh, judging by the Western attitude towards Iran, judging by the Israeli attitude towards Hezbollah, Judging by the rifts inside Israel, judging by the Israeli reaction to uh, what, hap what was happening, the terror wave that uh, took place in the West Bank, uh, all of these things uh, were judged by them as an opportunity. Uh, they misjudged, but uh, they, they didn't manage to have the, the surprise. Secondly, we didn't have enough information about the, the specific attack that they were uh, planning to, uh, to conduct. Uh, this, this was terrible. Uh, because we should have had this information and we didn't. And uh, this was uh, some sort of, a, you know, imagination failure that they would carry out such heinous attack in such magnitude. And uh, it wasn't easy to, to envisage something like that, but, and we didn't. And uh, it's, uh, it's a pity. And thirdly, we didn't have the specific information about the emerging attack once it was already going to, to be implemented on the night before. And uh, we did the mistake that uh, we shouldn't have done because we did have some indications that something that is dangerous is happening, and instead of following the rule that if there is a doubt, there is no doubt, uh, the intelligence people that were in charge at the, at the time decided that uh, they want to be very professional, and they don't want to fall into the cry-wolf uh, syndrome, and uh, that's why they didn't sound the alarm, and uh, the results were terrible. On top of that, I think that there's one other basic problem, it's very difficult for us to understand that people can, can really act in this, in this manner. These were people that uh, uh, did all these barbaric uh, deeds, uh, rape and uh, beheading and things like that, it's, uh, shooting at children, it's, uh, this was, uh, kidnapping children and the elderly. It's, uh, this is something that, for us Westerners, it's beyond our imagination. Yeah, yeah it's, indeed, it's a of, and uh, of an education that is terrible, hate, hating doctrination. Not only, uh, that, Yossi, not, not only that, Yossi, that, that they, 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 uh, human beings, as you say, conducted these terrible acts. But it's even more horrifying that they were so proud of it that they posted it all on Facebook and they, they, were, they weren't ashamed of what they did. No, 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 they were totally proud of it. And the, the, what's even worse than that is that not only them were proud of that and uh, made it a point that they took uh, footage of what they did and, and in order to uh, put it on social media, but the people of Gaza, the, the, you know, we are, I hear the leaders of the world trying to say, look, uh, Hamas does not represent the people of uh, Gaza. Well, the people of Gaza uh, chanted and uh, gave uh, candies uh, to, to everybody and uh, took part, active part in, the, in this, you know, the, some people of Gaza followed the Hamas uh, terrorists in, into the kibbutzim and the, the, the communities in, around Gaza and uh, killed the Israelis on their own initiative uh, that's, uh, and took hostages, some of them took hostages uh, with them to, uh, on top of the looting and the, and the other thing things that they did. So it's, uh, the people of Gaza are, have to ask themselves some questions too. It's, uh, because of this, the fact is that this hate indoctrination is not the, uh, pinpointed towards the Hamas operatives only. It's, uh, this hate indoctrination takes place in every school in Gaza. So all the, and this is coming from the Palestinian Authority. This uh, hate indoctrination is coming from not only Hamas, but also from the Palestinian Authority. This brainwash of the entire people with hatred and the uh, supporting the, the most vicious uh, terror attacks 
is, uh, is something that we have to, to bear in mind when we come into Gaza. Uh, we'll have to take care of in, uh, education, first of all, in order to change the situation in Gaza. Something has to be done about that. Can you, can you help us understand the nature of the uh, Israeli uh, action in Gaza right now? Because, of course, you'd be aware we get imperfect uh, and often deliberately perversely misleading um, information in our media and elsewhere on what's happening. What is the nature of what Israel is, is the, the, the action that Israel is carrying out right now in Gaza? How would you characterize that? And, and what is the end point? Well, what, what we're doing now is preparing the ground for the ground inv incursion. Uh, we hit a lot of uh, Hamas uh, positions. We asked the population, even in spite of everything I said before, we asked the civilian population to leave, to leave the area where we focus our uh, attack, which is uh, in, the, in Gaza City and its surroundings, and we tell them to move south, uh, south of the Gaza River, and we arrange for them a safe place to, to uh, stay there, and we are making sure that the, the humanitarian needs are going to be met uh, if they move to, in, into this uh, location. And uh, in the meanwhile, we prepare the battlefield for the ground in incursion. We hit Hamas targets. We already hit, I think, thousands of uh, targets, as, as I said. And uh, we caused a lot of damage to Hamas. There are many people uh, hit by, by these uh, attacks. Most of them are people from, the, from Hamas. They have, we managed even to hit some uh, key figures in Hamas. And we keep doing that. Uh, so that when we move uh, with the ground uh, incursion, uh, the resistance we are going to face is going to be less than what could have been. Uh, we, we definitely anticipate strong uh, resistance and uh, it's, going, it's not going to be a walk, a walk in the park. It's, uh, it's going to be painful and taking over a city of, in the size of Gaza with uh, something like a million uh, people living in it. I hope they are not going to be there, but uh, there are about 40,000 uh, Hamas terrorists waiting for us there. Uh, we uh, understand it's going to be a difficult task. And uh, we need these preparations. That's why time is, uh, it seems as if it's a long time. It's, it's only two weeks since, uh, since the attack. It took us a, a couple of days to, to re regain control of the, territory, of the areas uh, that were taken by the, by the terrorists. And now we, are, we, and we had to, you know, we were not under, under, in the midst of planning a uh, ground invasion to, to Gaza, not at all. Our policy until now, was that uh, when something happens of this uh, kind of uh, Hamas terror attack, we respond with some air attacks, and uh, there we arrange some sort of an arrangement with the Palestinians that they promise for a while not to launch rockets at us, and everything is fine. This time is a totally different ballgame. We, we are there in order to eradicate Hamas. We, we shall uh, take uh, all of the militants and uh, make sure their eyes are arrested or killed, we shall uh, make sure that Hamas doesn't rule Gaza anymore, and we are going to be left with a problem. It reminds me of uh, General Petraeus when he took Fallujah and he reported to his commander and uh, he said, I have two, two announcements. Uh, one is good, one is bad. And his uh, commander, General Wallace, asked him, what, is the good, what are the good news? He said, we own Fallujah. So I said, okay, and what are the bad news? We own Fallujah. It's, uh, mm. <laughs> that, yeah. is, uh, that is the situation we are entering. We, we know we don't want to own Gaza. Nobody wants it. The fact is, the matter is that nobody wants to own Gaza. But mm. uh, yeah. we are about to own Gaza, and we shall have to uh, at least militarily rule it for, for a long period of time to make sure that uh, no repetition of such a terrible terror attack may, may take place. Let me put you uh, a few of the comments that have been made here by uh, people who are members of our government. Um, first of all, you have a backbencher, Maria Vakin, uh, Van Vakunu, who's, who describes this as an op occupation. Uh, this is the longest occupation in military history. Uh, and you've got uh, a senior government minister, Ed Husek, who says that what the Israelis are doing now it amounts, amounts to collective punishment for Hamas's barbarism. Uh, and you have our foreign minister who, who says that is urging all sides to show restraint. Do these people have a clue what they're talking about? Unfortunately not. First of all, we, we are not governing or occupying Gaza for the last, uh, uh, what it is, 18 years. Okay, 18 years, since 2005. We left in 2005. Mm -hmm. We left it completely 
We even left the corridor that uh, combines uh, Gaza with Egypt. So actually, Gaza has a border with Egypt through which they can enter and, uh, and leave. It's, uh, there's no uh, occupation of Gaza. We did have uh, control of uh, the uh, merchandise that was coming in to make sure that dual-use uh, merchandise would not come in. But a part of that, uh, nothing uh, that uh, we do is, is occupation of Gaza. I remember the discussion in the government back in 2005 when uh, uh, Sharon insisted that we shall uh, evacuate Gaza completely, including this corridor that, uh, com that is between Gaza and, uh, and Egypt, just to make sure that we do not uh, occupy Gaza. Nobody will be able to say that we occupy Gaza. They have their own government. We left it in the hands of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas took over in 2007. We left it in the hands of the Palestinian Authority in 2005. 2007, Hamas took over by killing the people of Fatah, killing the people of the Palestinian Authority, throwing them from the 15th floors of uh, the high-rising buildings of Gaza. And from ever since then, since 2007, they control Gaza. What, in spite of all our efforts to convince them to turn Gaza into Singapore and uh, with all the capabilities and the opportunities mm. they have in Gaza, they decided to focus on only one thing, uh, killing Jews. And, uh, and unfortunately, the, all their money was invested in uh, military tunnels and uh, military equipment and uh, training the people to carry out terror attacks and with, with a lot of support from Iran. That, that was what Gaza was uh, used for. Now, about uh, the operation we are carrying out uh, indiscriminate and all of that, we are trying our best in, in a very problematic and demanding situation not to hit civilians. That, that's why we ask the civilians to leave the areas and that, uh, where the war is being fought. And that's why we arrange for them a special uh, safe zone. That's, uh, the Hamas is forbidding some of them from leaving and use them as human shields. That is the situation that we are facing. In spite of that, we are still trying very hard to use pinpointed weapons in, in order to minimize the damage done to, to civilians. Sometimes it, we can do it uh, in an easier way. If there's a facility that belongs to Hamas and there is, it's not uh, manned anyhow, there's nobody in it, uh, we ask the people to leave before we attack the facility. Sometimes when we look for a specific guy that is a high-ranking uh, terrorist in, in Hamas, we cannot tell the people leave because if we tell the people to leave, then he himself is going to leave. Uh, so we have to use more... Uh, precise munition in order to hit him, but uh, if these people are staying around him, forced to, to be stayed, to stay around him by Hamas, there are, uh, unfortunately, there is uh, collateral damage, and the people that are uninvolved may, may get uh, hit by, by our strikes. That, that is a pity, and we want and we try very hard to avoid that. This is what we're, what we're facing in, in, uh, in Gaza. But in the end, you are in a war situation there. You can't afford to pull your punches because you're going to attract foreign criticism. And you'll always attract foreign criticism because you're Israel, right? So that's right, isn't it? You've just got to carry out a military operation to the best of your ability without it's, it's, having it's, to worry it's amazing about the it is amazing how the you know the usual suspects, those who hate Israel to the to the point that they are totally blind to what's going on, uh, come up and uh, support Hamas in a, in a, play, a situation like that. What Hamas did is, is are crimes against humanity, uh, not only war crimes. These are crimes against humanity. Well, everything they did, you know, the the, the cruelty and the, the viciousness and the savagery that uh, characterized their activities on October seventh is, is something that every person should stand against. And uh, we see some Arabs standing against it and uh, condemning Hamas. And still you see some people in the West. It's, uh, it's really mind-boggling. How, how, how does that happen? Mm. And, uh, that uh, support Hamas activity. It's, it's, they, they should really be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, I agree. I mean, but, uh, I, I witnessed a demonstration here in Granada in southern Spain at the weekend, um, and the people who are protesting look like fresh-faced students. You know, I mean, They've got the evidence they need, haven't they, Yossi? They have all the evidence of those atrocities in yeah. their iPhones. They have no excuse. They don't have any excuse. They should be ashamed of themselves. And uh, it, it tells you something. What you know, as I said in the beginning, we are fighting a war here on, on behalf of the, as part of the of an axis. 
that is comprised of the civilized people, if these people who support Hamas are not civilized, are against civilization, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. How, how can they do that? It's, uh, this is beyond me. But we have to understand, if Israel doesn't uh, decide this war in a, in a very clear way, uh, the, the things that happened here uh, can happen everywhere. We see those demonstrations. These people who support uh, this kind of uh, savagery uh, will do the same in, in other places if they taste, uh, if they feel that uh, there is a weakness on the other side. That's, uh, we have to be strong and we have to be decisive and then make sure that the message is clear. Civilized world is not going to tolerate something like that. Yossi Cooper-Vassas, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Well, that's it from our first program here in Cont on continental Europe from Granada in Andalusia in southern Spain. It's been a pleasure to host the program from here, as you can imagine. Next week, uh, a very special program. I'll be in London for the Alliance for Responsible Citizens, a new initiative that attempts to bring together uh, conservative thinkers, centre-right thinkers, sensible thinkers, I like to think, from around the world to try and work out uh, an alternative narr narrative to the dull narrative that we hear every day in the media. That's uh, Battleground coming to you from London next Thursday at 8 p.m. And that's just about it for tonight. Thank you to my team at, uh, in Sydney, to Charlie and the gang at the studios there in Sydney. Uh, thank you to everybody here who's made my stay here so welcome. And I'll play you out on a little bit of beautiful flamenco music. Yeah.